0: Hello everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for episode 118 of the podcast. Today I'll be talking with Helen Sword, Professor Emerita in the School of Humanities and the Center for Arts and Social Transformation at the University of Auckland, and founder of WriteSpace, an international virtual writing community. Her book, Writing with Pleasure, beautifully illustrated by Selina Tusitala Marsh, was published this year by Princeton University Press. It's part of the exciting and expanding series, Skills for Scholars. If you do research, there's definitely something here for you. Did you play too, as a kid, the game Opposites? You say, I'm hungry, and I know you mean, I'm not hungry. I say, don't kick the ball, and you know I mean, kick the ball. I loved opposites, turning the world on its head for a few minutes just by an agreement between me and a friend. I'm older now, as are we all, but I've played the game again recently with my little nephew. I played, but I have to say I've lost touch. I found it almost as difficult sticking to the opposite of what I meant as beginning a foreign language. My nephew, on the other hand, opposited with the fluency all kids possess at play. Needless to say, my mess-ups kinda made our game less fun, so we soon moved on to another game, Paper Airplanes, which I proved much better at, but I couldn't forget for days after about how bad I'd become at Opposites, which got me to thinking about why that should be. Opposites is a game based on reality, but the rules allow you and your friends to alter that reality any way you'd like, but me, my adult self, I just seem to stick to the reality, can't get myself to surpass that block. The reality seems just too ingrained, and making the effort to break through, well that challenge just hardly seems worth the trouble. I mean, the reality stays that way, whether I reframe it for fun or not, right? If I'm hungry, then I'm going to just say so. I want people to know it, because not everybody will be in on the game, and they just might believe my opposite talk, and what'll that get me? Do you see my point? What good can come of flipping reality? Well, actually a lot. At least that's where my thinking about opposites eventually has led me. My trouble playing the game of opposites really stemmed from the fact that my nephew was as able, just like that. Able and ready to say the opposite of what he wanted and didn't want. He was just as able at doing that as I was unable to tell what was and what was not for me. Basically, he was in touch. I was out of touch. He could tell right off where things stood for him, and so elegantly reverse it all. I couldn't tell, and so reversed things sloppily and just plain wrong. That was my problem. And it's a problem, I believe, that many adults have. We adults usually think, what are we supposed to be doing now? Kids never think that. Kids hate supposed to, they whine at supposed to, they yawn around supposed to, they avoid supposed to like they avoid the haunted house at the end of a street. But for us adults, supposed to is our compass. But that compass fails us when we play a game like Opposites. The compass goes haywire like we were standing over Magnetic North and we no longer can tell not from is, no from do. But that, it's my point here is out of touch. I mean reality is more complicated than either the game of opposites or are adults supposed to make reality out to be. But the thing is, kids don't rely upon opposites as a navigator relies upon a compass. Kids are always coming up with new ways of imagining their surroundings and the faces who people those surroundings. Kids remain imaginatively at an advantage over reality until the day they become adults because on that day The one-time kids, now adults, do rely upon just one compass, and it is that grown-up's compass I've been talking about here. The supposed to. A lot gets lost in this transition. I mean, our adult-minded reliance upon supposed to, to be there to tell us what is and what isn't. That reliance eventually will reduce the complicatedness of reality in ways very many of which are not so good. For example, exercise. For many of us, the recognition has clearly sunk in that exercise improves our lives, and yet we will continue to do it as a duty rather than as a joy. I mean, just think, since exercise really does improve life, as anyone who is truly engaged in exercise will say, then why shouldn't it be a joy? But our exercise regiments and workout plans belie the good of the act, And what is more, our rush to get the exercise done really misrecognizes just how strenuous our so-called relaxation time can get. Sitting long in the same position, staring long at a screen, remaining long indoors. These sorts of things when viewed from the good of exercise actually start proving to be a lot less like relaxation and a lot more like relaxation's opposite. I remember in that game of opposites with my nephew how he giggled saying, I don't want to run, as he darted out of the room. Now that was a game of opposites, but in truth, reality resembles opposites much more often than many of us notice, or many of us would care to admit, and exercise is a case in point. Another case in point is writing, especially the sort done by researchers to do their work and publish their findings. What is in fact the reality of writing for research purposes? Is it really as tough and rough and pain-filled and tedium-laden as the general consensus among researchers would appear to make the writing out to be? I'm not sure. In fact, I am very doubtful. Shall I show you how doubtful I am with a few turns at opposites? All right then, here goes. I want to carry in mind the ideas of three years' work. I like how my ideas fade from the reach of my attention's grasp. I want to forget more nuances of my thinking. I am going to jot that flash of insight on the back of this envelope, going to record that observation in my lab notebook, going to take careful note of those facts in the archives, going to add my lines of contribution to the shared doc where my project team are advancing the work. And as culmination, I am going to weave all the threads into one and tell those researchers very distant from my work, this is what I have done, and having done it, this is what I know. Do you see a new reality taking shape here? Do you notice how the writing we adults, and especially we grown-up researchers so often beleaguer and typically have only bad words for, Do you notice how this writing actually becomes the very thing we want to do, if for no better reason than we need to do it? That's what emerges for me, I must say. And after reading such a line as this, Surely writing with pleasure is better than writing with pain? And Helen Sword's strikingly original book, Writing with Pleasure? Well, that encourages me to think that this emerging possibility, this possibility that we deny ourselves the desire to write, because we imagine only one reality for the act of writing? Well, this emerging possibility of good writing, I want to say, is one I believe that at least Helen will recognize with me. And I'm going to venture that you'll recognize the good writing too, once you've read this reality flipper of a book, Writing with Pleasure. So let's begin today's episode, Helen's Sword and Writing for Pleasure. Hi Helen, welcome to Scholarly Communication.
1: Thank you, Daniel. Great to be here.
0: As you uh, just probably followed in my <laughs> intro, uh, the, the idea that I was working with was sometimes it's good to question reality, if you like. Uh, use your imagination to open up new possible realities, which can become just as real as the old reality might have been. Uh, th- this is something that your book also inspired me to. I mean, you make it quite apparent in the intro and in your coverage of the research that you are treading new ground here. It's almost like you've, you've found a new reality for writing.
1: Yeah, perhaps. It was interesting listening to your intro. Um, where I thought you were going with that was the idea not so much of opposite realities but of play and how as children we all know how to play and then we forget that and we all know how to have pleasure in writing, and then we forget that. So it's not so much that we're moving back to an opposite reality, but that we're moving back to the reality that we knew as children, and then somehow wipe out and forget.
0: Yeah, that's, that, that is actually um, perhaps more at the base of, of what I was saying. I mean, that was that idea that, you know, my, my nephew knew exactly what he wanted, and it was for me, you know, like an analytical question <laughs> and yeah. um, that you can trust yourself as a child in a sense, in a way that you, as an adult, you sort of lose that that sense of trust.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And um, just another thing I'll say is when you introduced me right there, you said writing for pleasure, but actually the book is writing with pleasure. And those are two quite different titles in a way. Because writing for pleasure, I think, is what we think of as, you know, you write your journal or you write your poem or whatever, but it's sort of divorced from the rest of your writing life. Whereas writing with pleasure is about trying to find ways of bringing pleasure to the writing we have to do. Right to our academic writing, our professional writing, whatever else, and again, that's not. I don't see that as a flipped reality. I see that as actually bringing back the joy in writing, if we've ever felt it. But most people, in my experience, have at some point, and then they've kind of lost it or forgotten it, or it's been shut out by. You know, this kind of other reality of a work life that doesn't want writing to be playful or fun, because if it were, if it were too pleasurable, then obviously we're not working hard enough. Right.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, these are some of the biases that you open up in the introduction of the book, telling us that. You know, ju- just the title of—I mean, now that we're at the title, we w- we might as well start at the title, right? <laughs> just the title of your book is is almost, in a sense, provocative for the typical academic setting. You know, that pleasure should, anyway, be brought into the entire equation. And and, and I like your your uh, you know precise choice there of preposition the with. Um, it it got me thinking as well because it's it's true when you talk with people who. Um, As my listeners will know, I work with scientists in writing and and even them, you know, computer scientists, biologists, when, when they think of writing, they immediately think of, you know, something literary. So this for pleasure type of thing, when they talk with someone like me, who they know has a background in writing, they'll think immediately of this for pleasure type writing. So they'll be talking about novels and stuff. And on my mind will be Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, Maybe we'll have a coffee over that. But really, what you need to be doing is, is your research writing with pleasure.
1: Yeah, that's that's certainly an interesting point that people seem to think that if it's pleasurable, that's because it's somehow literary or poetic, and that the kind of writing that we have to do every day, our, our email or our scientific reports or academic articles, whatever that may be, that somehow it's inherently doomed to not be pleasurable. And yet when I've talk to writers and when I ask them for narratives of pleasure about their writing times in their lives when writing has given them pleasure, I've had many, many accounts from people about the pleasures of their intellectual work, the pleasures of crafting an article or a book or a talk or whatever it may be that communicates their research clearly and well and effectively, you know, there's pleasure in all of those things. So uh, I was trying to, to highlight all those pleasures because as I write about in the book um, when I went looking for any kind of help books, um, guide books, research-based books on writing, anything really talking about the importance of value and value of finding pleasure in our workplace and professional and academic writing. There's just almost nothing. And yet it's such an important concept that we know this from behavioral psychology. We know that if you come with pleasure to pretty much any kind of task, you're going to be more productive. You're going to do it longer. You're going to do it better because you're going to dedicate more of yourself to learning how to do it well. So, why are we not bringing all of that kind of research to our work of writing? And thinking about
0: the ways, yeah, sorry. No, no, uh, I'm I'm sorry, but it just reminds me so much of what you state right at the beginning of your book, and I I really think that this is definitely worth emphasizing as you're doing this, and I'm quoting, this book has an audacious aim, and I agree, to recuperate pleasure as a legitimate, indeed, and here it comes, crucial writing-related emotion. And this emotional side, which just somehow gets... Yeah, over overlooked really, um, and even in the most mo- mundane sorts of texts, as as you're saying, you know, some administrative paperwork, emails, and so on, or even articles that you know aren't necessarily even searched for with pleasure. I mean, you have a huge Google search, Google Scholar search list in front of you. It's not like there's necessarily pleasure in reading those abstracts or titles or trying to find the relevant re- uh, literature, but that that's actually going to increase your productivity, that that's that the, the meaning and the satisfaction that you derive from that reading and from the writing that you do from it is, is just absolutely crucial, as you say.
1: Yeah, and it's not all going to be fun or easy, but really, I guess one of my key findings uh, from the book I wrote previously to this air enlightened time and space on how successful academics write was, um, first of all, how much pleasure those successful academics find in their writing, but that it's not easy pleasure. It's not, you know, hopping through the daisies. Oh, this is, this is so fabulously wonderful pleasure. It's writing is challenging, writing is hard, writing can be frustrating, but the challenge gives me pleasure, right? You know, so it's a it's a deeper kind of pleasure. And so I find even the challenge of thinking, how can I make something I dislike pleasurable, starts to turn around my emotions or, about it, because then I'm, I'm, well, maybe it is the opposite game. Let's let's go back to what you and your nephew were saying. Maybe it is the opposite game. Saying, let's take the thing that we find hard and pretend that it's not, and what will happen then?
0: Yeah, definitely. And and someone whom you you also quote and writing with pleasure, Valin uh, Klinkenborg, makes me think of of the same sort of thinking where he he talks about, well, he says at one point, if it's challenging, then you can be sure things are going right, you know? And, uh, and that made me think that, you know, this writing with pleasure idea that you're talking about is really just another way of saying, and and here I'm just thinking out loud, writing without suffering. And that's, uh, possible if you know you have the right mindset i mean more and more research and studies in neuroscience for example yeah just as one example are uh, uh, showing the plasticity of the brain and the ability of the mind to literally form new pathways through the way we typically do our things in li- life life uh, so that we can do them better really
1: yeah and we we know that pain isn't good for us and suffering isn't good for us. So while we persist in having a kind of academic culture that almost romanticizes, oh, this is so hard, you know, this is so painful because the very little literature that there is that even talks about emotions around academic writing tends to kind of pathologize, you know, the negative emotions around it. And yet when I talk to real people, real writers who are successful in different aspects of what they do, there's there's a ton of pleasure there. And what I found in the research for this book, where I asked nearly 600 writers to write narratives of pleasure, as I called them, I asked them to write about a time in their life when writing gave them pleasure. And I didn't specify when, how long ago, what kind of writing they could choose. And pretty much exactly half of them, they were all academics, either PhD students, postdocs, or academic faculty, publishing academics. And pretty much half of them chose to write about a time when they were doing academic writing. And they wrote about all different kinds of pleasures. So for some, it was the cognitive pleasure of these new ideas and the subject matter, but others wrote about the pleasures of um, editing you know, or the pleasures of doing the research before you get started or the pleasures of crafting a sentence. And I discovered that pretty much anything that any writer would say, uh, I really that's the one part of writing that I really struggle with. There's going to be somebody in my research group in my data, who (laughs) finds pleasure in particularly that thing. So it doesn't mean we're all going to love everything, but it means if you know that there's somebody out there who loves editing and you hate editing, maybe it's worth looking at how that person who loves editing Approaches what they're doing and thinking, gosh, can I learn something from them? Can I change my approach to editing? Is this sort of a knee jerk thing I've learned along the way? Are there ways that I can bring the things that I know I enjoy doing to this particular task that I don't enjoy doing so that I can turn it around, find more pleasure in it, or at least less pain and suffering to make my life easier, to make my writing better? And to make the entire task, um, yeah, more enjoyable.
0: And that's what the book actually allows readers to do, I find. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure listeners will know by now you've been on the show before and people also just know your name that you do retreats and coaching and other, uh, you know, consulting type work uh, with academic writers and other writers as well. And this this book for me also seems to be so practical like that. I mean, you open up so many, you keep changing and shifting the perspective, particularly with metaphors. The use of metaphorical um, practice uh, is, is very apparent in the book as it was in, in your previous book as well. And here you explore it once more to, to, to great benefit. And what, what I find is very late in the book, uh, at one point you, you present another problem of something that might cause suffering and how it might be that you could get around that. And, and you make the side, side comment, I hope by now you're just prickling with ideas on how to face this. <laughs> and <laughs> and that indeed is how the book actually gets you, because you, you realize that you, what you're doing is you're in your book and in your general practice, I would say, Helen, is is, is offering ways forward, continually, right? Um, and, and and that comes out of the book as well, which is, which is wonderful to see.
1: Thank you, yeah, it, it, from the beginning, when I was working on stylish academic writing, that was really the first book where I had to face this question of how do you write a book that is scholarly, research-based, but also practical and useful? And there are so many books that are how-to books, but aren't particularly based on a lot of research. They often are based on one person's experience as a writer and maybe on their experience working with a particular group of people that they've been coaching or helping within their discipline usually. But what's really rare is for you to find someone who does this kind of pan-disciplinary research, looking at academic writing and writers across the disciplines and says, okay, here's the landscape, but then also says, oh, and here are some strategies for moving towards a different landscape. And most books on writing tend to be one or the other, Certainly, on academic writing, and I've tried to do both it's a tricky genre sometimes to to master, but I've kind of given up worrying about it. you know it's like this is this is what I do, so let me throw some research at you and let me throw some strategies at you and let me throw some anecdotes at you of things that other people have done, and let me throw some metaphors at you of ways that you could actually use. Um, the power of metaphor to open up your thinking because I come out of a literary studies and poetry background. So I do want to bring those kinds of strategies in as well for people who maybe aren't so familiar to thinking that way. So yeah, always trying to give people ways of moving forward or moving in a new direction while also being really aware that there's not going to be just one way. And so the more, different strategies I can give but then also help people work out which strategy is the best for them so it's not just this huge smorgasbord where you you don't even know where to get started so I'm always the way I think about it is I'm always kind of building or creating kind of algorithms that lead to a much more complex heuristic I want my I don't just want to do a sort of do this, and you'll have this outcome. It's more like, here's a structure, here's a way of thinking about this particular issue. In this case, writing with pleasure, or the emotions around writing. And within this kind of structure, here are some possibilities for you that you can plug into your own particular experience.
0: And, and that's really one of the strengths of your approaches, and it, it, it becomes more apparent with each book. Um, I find that this last book, Writing with Pleasure, r- really has that feeling of a retreat, in a sense, where the reader, him or herself, you know, engages with their own way of doing it, or their own challenges in doing it, and then figures out through your guidance because that's what it is as as you try as you described there you know this this i'm not going to i'm not going to pass on now information to you how to write i mean mm-hmm. your approach seems to be more on the how to how to write right <laughs> you, you, Think, you were, things
1: you could try to figure out your own way of how to write yeah and i'm as as we make this recording i'm about halfway through Running a course, a kind of virtual course with a group of writers that's called The Pleasure Catalyst. So, we're kind of digging into some of the concepts in this book, and I'm giving people exercises that are not identical to what's in the book but are drawn from them, and giving them prompts to go off and do some writing, reflective thinking, uh, communicating with each other about what they're doing it's been just extraordinary to see the response when you give people a bit of time and space to go and and think about well where do i really find pleasure where do i find pleasure in my in my life in my hobbies how can i bring some of that pleasure to my writing well, what really matters to me in my writing? what are the things that what are my guiding stars you know to use some of these metaphors? what's my standing place what's the place that I'm coming from? and all of these are are really big, powerful questions that help people move themselves and their writing and their thinking to a new place. so I guess for me the the challenge with this book was to to get that kind of energy and that kind of movement happening just within the prose. In other words, you know, I'm just putting it on the page for some stranger to pick up possibly years from now, and yet I want them to feel that energy and to feel that kind of excitement about trying something new and going someplace new with their thinking,
0: I, I wanted right now to turn us a bit to the structure of the book because and how you achieve what you've just said you had set out to achieve, and and yet I have to sidetrack just one last time because of something that you've just said in your experience right now with the, with the um consulting that you're doing in this in this virtual group, you talk about the extraordinary response that comes when you just open up that space for people to actually you know explore something that pleasure in writing something that's kind of foreign to very many academic settings when it comes to the work that that's being done. And yet I have noticed a clear trend. I'm going to say over the past, say 15 years, at most 20 years, but it's intensified for sure where there's clearly a, an evolution or an development going on in academic culture where people are noticing that it needs to be done differently. That's, We need to recognize very much the emotional side, um, people's mental health, where we need to realize that, you know, there needs to be a balance, work-life balance, which is, you know, one of those catchwords at the moment. I'm thinking also of the very many podcasts that have now grown up around this theme of, um, you know, being an academic, being productive and being content at least or happy at that. Uh, one perfect example is Academic Imperfectionist by Rebecca Roach. Um, that sort of work seems to be expanding and, and I, fit, I, I would put your work very much on its effect anyway, definitely within that category. I, I mean, it's a hybrid sort of work because it's also very research based as well. Um, how, do you, how do you yourself as being part of this trend, at least in my analysis, see this change in academic culture?
1: Well, it's certainly certainly a good and necessary thing, and I think a lot of people who have written in this area have either come out of, you know, their own experience, but also a lot of people come through some kind of connection to the research on psychology and well-being. So out of a more kind of social science approach, for me, it's been a really organic thing, and it's come from me coming originally out of the humanities, but then also moving into uh, teaching and learning and academic development and and kind of uh, research on higher education, which is a bit more social science-y. But coming, I guess for me, I started writing about academic writing from the perspective of the craft, very much the words on the page. And then I came from there to the people. And then I came from the people talking to people about their writing to the emotions around academic writing and the well-being. So in a way, all of that kind of um, psychological literature, well-being research has, for me, come in through the back door. And I think that's that shows its urgency in a sense. In other words, I guess what I'm trying to say is this was not my agenda at the beginning when I wrote The Writer's Diet and Stylish Academic Writing to end up trying to help people be, you know, happier and more contented in their lives as writers. But the two things are connected because uh, for me, there's what I found through my research is there is a very strong connection between Pleasure in the craft of writing, and an overall sense of um, of kind of satisfaction with the work of being an academic. Uh, so the the craft and the emotions are more connected than you might think. Um, I'm not sure if that's answered your question. Except it to in, say, in
0: fact, in fact, I, I need only quote from uh, the beginning of your book where you say, "I didn't choose pleasure; pleasure chose me," and I yeah, agree very, I agree very exactly much it. with you when you <laughs> say that. When you say that, that's a sign, you know, yeah. that's a sign that something's going on here. Um, yeah,
1: I didn't come in with any kind of agenda, and I certainly didn't come in influenced by other literature on the need for more pleasure and well-being in academic writing because this book was well underway before most of the kinds of books you've mentioned came out. So it's more one of those zeitgeist things, I think, where you have a lot of people around the world in a lot of different academic contexts all coming to similar realizations from quite different places just because of the the urgency. And this is a pre-pandemic book too, I have to say. I had completed the research on it Um well, my my last I traveled to ten different countries or something. My last trip was to Chile in November of 2019. Right, so writing with pleasure was something I was already uh, I already saw as such an important thing to try to get into the world. And now we've had three years of this uh, of people going through a kind of emotional turmoil that none of us could have imagined in November 2019. So it's become more urgent than ever, I think that, or more, more topical than ever, that we should talk about the emotions around writing. And we should, you know, this this book is published as part of Princeton's Skills for Scholars series. So writing with pleasure is a scholarly skill. And that is, you know, just an essential thing to remember. This isn't fuzzy-wuzzy stuff. This is core to um how we operate. And it's not just about these emotions off to the side. It's about the craft of writing. It's about Productivity—all of these things are connected to our emotions and to our well-being and to how we position ourselves in the world, not just as academics but as human beings.
0: I have to, unfortunately, continue to push just one more question back. <laughs> this because I, I, I but, no, because I really want um, to get into the organization structure and presentation of the book because it's it's one of its unique features that's 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 for sure anyone who just takes a glance through it at at a bookshop or online will notice right away um what's so special about it but what I like also this podcast to be is an open conversation, a, a platform for people who have, you know, something important to say. And, and, and you are very much, Helen, included in that. And what you're talking about here is one of these important issues which very many people yet have not appreciated. The idea that your emotional connection to your work and sometimes also your ability to emotionally deconnect from your work, <laughs> your ability to understand what you're going through when you do parts of your work, and in this particular case, research and writing, um, that makes up the bulk of what academics are at. Um, my point is, is it? I would like it also to be an opportunity, this conversation, for us to reach certain people, or for at least the people who are listening to us to be able to turn around and reach the people who can make a change. And, and I wonder, any of the stakeholders in the area of publishing or researching or education, any of them that you would have a particularly, let's say, concise message to. What what would be the thing that you feel that comes out of your research and your vast experience in this area that you think really should be taken up by by someone out there?
1: <laughs> oh, that's a that's a a big question <laughs> it's a call to it's a call to action it's a call to it's action a, it's a call to action and when you name these stakeholders i think maybe what pops well clearly the people who manage academics you know the administrators the people who push 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 for more 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 and the fact is if you want more you don't do it by cracking the whip you do it by putting the giving giving the horse um, you know some green pastures, right you know the same is true for academics that if if academics felt like they were treated better, they had more time and space to just sort of breathe clear air um, that we would actually get better writing and ultimately more, um, more valuable, more creative, more innovative, more impactful research from them as well. So <laughs> I guess that would be one place, you know, finance the writing retreats, you know, if you're an administrator, um, if you're a, a Department chair, um, somebody who's line managing academics, don't just sit down with them when they have a performance review and say, "Why haven't you published more?" <laughs> um, look after their well-being. Ask them what gives you pleasure. What what are you excited about right now in your research? And then find ways to facilitate those things that they feel really passionate about. That's how you're going to get that productivity that you're looking for as well and the impact and the innovation. So certainly anybody in, in any of those kind of management roles, but I would also say to anybody who teaches undergraduates or high school teachers or, or anybody who works, who supervises PhD students, that I guess there's a long, long tradition of treating writing with what I would call the eat your vegetables approach. Um, You know, writing is hard, but you've got all these rules you need to learn. So just, you know, you're not going to enjoy it, but just eat your vegetables, right? Well, (laughs) that's a really good way of getting a kid to really hate their vegetables, (laughs) in my experience. Whereas... You know, if you if you um, if you can flip that to a pleasure based approach where you're really focusing on teaching people encouraging people at any level to enjoy writing to enjoy intellectual labor as something they can be passionate about and committed to and really want to do well again you're going to have a much better outcome for everyone. You're going to have uh, better writing happening because it won't feel so painful. And I know this from my own teaching experience that when I've used the same kinds of strategies that I talk about in the book to bring my students to pleasure in writing, I get better writing out of them. I get better thinking out of them. So it's not taking them away from intellectual rigor. It's actually giving them a gateway, a way in. So, you know, yeah, I I am kind of talking about the whole world here right (laughs) but it's just such...
0: I, I instigated sick. that, so it's, it's, not your, <laughs> it's not your fault, but I'm really excited about these things, Helen, and that's why I, I'm, I'm so happy about what you say. I mean, it, it brings us deep into the heart of your book where you ask, this is precisely what you're talking about right now, where you ask, how can we kindle our students' passion and pleasure in writing rather than fanning the flames of their anxiety or snuffing out their desire to learn? Exactly. There we have it. Right. I mean, this, there this is. There we have it.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and and I I think it's really finally time. This is why I I I, I do this podcast. To be honest. Um, to, to ask this question in earnest and then to act upon it, I mean, the people you've identified there, the, the, you know, the, the teachers, the administrators or, or managerial staff, um, exactly right. These are the people who are having major effects on how the research is done and how the research is conceived. You know, if it's conceived by a master student or a PhD student as as filling in a formatted, pre-digested, uh, type chapter or book or article, and and that becomes apparent in the writing, and it's almost impossible to appreciate the information that's being passed on there or the ideas that have been found there, because it's just, yeah, I mean, like. Dead limbs, or if it's something that's truly growing and inspiring, and people want to pick it up and carry on that line of thinking.
1: Yeah, I think part of the problem, though, whether with teachers or administrators, is uh, we only know what we've been taught and how we've been taught. So if we haven't had people who have inspired us in that way, who have opened up the possibilities for us, it makes it very challenging then for the gatekeepers and the the teachers to to change their way of thinking because it's kind of the opposite of what they've been taught we're back to your opposites game here <laughs> you know so unless you um, I guess as a again as a manager if you' manage or as a teacher you um, even if you don't feel like you yourself know the way to pleasure in writing because nobody showed you, you can at least take that student or take that PhD student or take that academic who's submitted an article that's doing things differently and instead of just shutting them down because that's not how things are done around here, you validate what they're doing and you give them a chance to breathe. Um, You give oxygen to that flame rather than snuffing it out. That would be a good starting place. And I'm talking about something here, obviously, much deeper than, than pleasure, necessarily. I'm talking about a kind of passion, but I'm also talking about just creativity and space for new ideas. To me, all of those things go together. And one of the things I've seen from having worked with so many academics around the world in so many situations over the years is, you know, I hear the same stories again and again and again. And it's about people having lost their joy, not just in writing, but all in all intellectual work, their joy and the reasons they went into these, this work in the first place by people who have just stomped on them. Again and again and again and said, no, no, you know, we don't have fun around here. You're doing it wrong. You need to do it differently. You need to follow the rules. You know, why are we doing this in an academic environment? Aren't we supposed to be opening up the gates to creativity?
0: Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you're also showing us a way in your work itself. Um, people talk about creative writing. I mean, I would describe your book as creative researching, um, in a way because it's, 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 it's demonstrating in a way how it can be done, but it's also inspiring people to do that sort of work in their own way. Um, I mean, you, you, br- you bring up really important roles, tasks that are fulfilled, in higher education, you know, so the teaching or the instructing, the managing, the researching themselves. And, and it's been my attempt to think of a way of making all that somehow collaborative, because I, I do agree very much. I think you, you've really put your finger upon it. I mean, it's the experience that someone else has had, a teacher now, a professor now, you know, a manager now, that is going to dictate very much how they will be able to fulfill that role in higher education. But what if it was all more collaborative? What if we had someone who very much like you was doing consulting of this sort inside of the research, Uh, excuse me, inside of the university or inside of the research institute, right? A sort of what you might call, you know, consulting or apprenticing program or collaborating program in a way where you know, the researchers at higher levels or even at lower levels, I'm thinking even down to master's level were, you know, accompanied or had another place to go, not just to their professor, not just to administration, but also to the the writing department. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I haven't come up with a name for it yet. <laughs> um, but, uh, for example, there's there's a STEAM movement now, you know, from STEM, but adding in the arts. and. Yeah. And, and, you know, this has become a very established thing now, you know, it's, it's about 20 years old or so, but, but one, one way that I think that the arts might, might serve, and, and, and I would see it as service, why not the sciences, this is at least one of the values that can be offered across that divide, would be the use and fascination with text, um, you, you, you show some of the ways in, in, in that chapter uh, that we were just referring to, the chapter nine star navigation, where I made that quotation. You give us these ideas of what learning can be, of non-hierarchical exchange can be, um, separating and connecting. Uh, you give us wonderful terms there from, from Polynesian languages that capture these ideas.
1: Mm, yeah, absolutely. And and it's all about how we can learn from each other. I think so much of academe is kind of fear driven. Um, people are afraid to try new things, because when they do, they get stomped on. The people who stomp on them are afraid to open the gates to anything other than what they knew. So, you know, they're more intent, the gatekeepers are often more intent on kind of cloning themselves than on welcoming innovation. And, um, you know, fear mostly happens in a kind of, in a kind of vacuum, or I guess courage happens best when you have others encouraging you so absolutely um collaboration of any kind and also what you're talking about a kind of coaching or or mentoring anything that helps guide people towards a new and different paradigm would be great
0: yeah, I, I I think it's worth looking just in maybe five minutes of detail into some of those, uh, and 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 for listeners' sake, uh, I'm taking apart here about five pages of a three hundred page book. So, <laughs> this will give you just a sense of w- what is in this book, um, just t- to look at some of these Polynesians terms really briefly, and 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 how they might actually concretize what you're talking about, give us a real form as to how to go forward. Um, for instance, the I found interesting the ako, I'm not very well versed in the pronunciation of these words, I'm sorry, AKO, Mm -hmm. reciprocity between teaching and learning. It made me think, actually, of something closer to home, Old English, lernian, which meant teach or learn, Um, and some dialects of English continue to...
1: You get that still in German too, don't you? Yeah. Right. That
0: connection. Yeah. Right. Right. And and some dialects of English even continue to use learn in a non-standard way that would mean teach. Um, and you talk there about how you know a writer can learn from their reader and a reader can learn from the writer, where it's actually the latter that most people are imagining happens through a text.
1: Yeah. So I was trying in that chapter, and it's getting towards the end of the book, it's chapter 9 out of 10 was the moment where I I just kind of allowed all of these uh, different, these non-Western intellectual paradigms and epistemologies that I've been exposed to in the 20 years that I've lived in New Zealand. Um, and I have thought about how if I open myself to to learning different ways of looking at the world from cultures different than the one I grew up in. First of all, it's a deeply joyful thing to be able to do to um, there's an intellectual pleasure in, in engaging with new ideas and, When I do that, and really do that on a a kind of deep and respectful level, um, I'm always brought to a new place in my own thinking. So I was just trying to demonstrate it with those particular terms and phrases, while also inviting readers to think about their own cultural context, to think about ideas that they could bring into their teaching, learning, writing experience that would, um, yeah, open them both to new ways of doing things and to more joyful ways of doing things.
0: And you know what I find so interesting is, is what you've just described there is, is a very non-Western setting that set in motion something in you that discovered, you know, new images, new ways of, of just, uh, you know, visualizing the world that brings me to another one of these Polynesian terms, the VA, V-A, spelled V-A, where you talk about that space, which, and, and this is also so intuitive in a sense, space between that separates, but likewise also connects. And, uh, that, that I found fascinating because it actually reminded me I've spent now probably four years fairly intensively working with, um, natural scientists on their writing. And it reminded me of what they do in their work and some of the hottest topics in scientific publishing, open access, for example, or the way that degrees are conferred on scientists, PhDs and so on. There's hardly a natural scientist or a natural science around today where the work is not highly collaborative by necessity. And now to use the dusty old system of a phd with one name and ownership of that intellectual content and uh, you know who wrote what and credit uh, allotment and so on it's just becoming passé at the moment and that is in a way you know so western (laughs) because that's how science is done and yet it, it it matches up entirely with this concept that you give us
1: yeah, the concept of the the va, and again, I I, I tried to be very careful about not just stepping into the quagmire of cultural appropriation. You know, okay, I'll come along as a Westerner and just grab a concept out of um, you know Samoan Tongan thinking that's been there for uh, for. Millennia and pretend to own it. I don't own these ideas, but as I understand the concept of the va from colleagues I've talked about and from things i've read it's it's an idea of a kind of void, an empty space, you could say, between two people or two concepts or a group of people, but it's not empty. It's a it's a relational space. And as soon as you start thinking about this construct, that even when I'm talking to you across distance um, and time zones and all those things, there's also a kind of human space that's separating us but joining us in which we are making the new reality of this conversation, in which our thoughts are coming together and interacting in this quite intricate way. And most people who encounter this idea of the Va, in my experience, immediately go, Oh, wow, that's really helpful. It's really helpful to think that when I'm talking to the student I supervise and they're looking at me with this sort of blank, frightened look on their face, it's because we haven't found the kind of shared meaning. <laughs> you know, we're still in the the empty part of the va kind of floundering around. So this relational space between us Um yeah again it's a it's a concept that I just felt I had to get into the book because even thinking about it gives me that kind of deep intellectual pleasure that we get from our uh, from our thorniest, most challenging um, cognitive challenges, I guess our most challenging challenges. Sorry, that was a bit. <laughs> That's it's, the way they
0: are, though. That's exactly how they yeah, are. Yeah, I mean, it's not enough that they're just a challenge, right? <laughs> they're a challenging challenge, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I mean, this is so useful, though. Um, I, I mean, indeed, at 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 the risk of appropriating cultures that you know we don't fully appreciate. Um, again, it shows up, though, in 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 European or, or Western-type thinking in, in the area of improv. Um, the Alan Alda Center for uh, Scientific Writing, um, I've had the director here on this program, gives another variation on just that theme of the space between people and the success that they've had with natural scientists doing improv theater. Oh, that's very cool. <laughs> it's very it, cool. And it's exactly that. What they're talking about, they, they use the word empathy. And yeah, They are just they are just basically discovering through that work, uh, have been now for for quite some time since it's been 30 years now um, that you then understand, you know, where, for example, on a very practical level, where a reader would be coming from. Right. I mean, a scientist is very likely on a highly specialized research topic to to jump in just far too deep before you know before anyone gets what the point of that is and and after two hours of improv they hold the same talk but have a totally different go at it you know they re-go it and it it just clicks so much better with their audience and and i mean here we have you know practical proof of, of what you're talking about the va fascinating I think it's time before uh, we, we close out that I finally do indeed get to the 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 pleasurable appearance of the book um, you you really take a new direction in this book uh, it has so many different features to it I, I'm just gonna sort of randomly lay out a few and, and I'd like you to maybe pick up the ones that you find are what you can say most about or oh, whatever, whatever response you might have to it. You give us a little bit of the design in the book and the, and the preface and, um, it has this sense of, it's a choose-your-own-adventure in a way, right? Proceed so or so through the book as you like. Here are some of your options. And we get some of the different pleasure prompts that are involved. We we get a brief uh, introduction to where these narratives of pleasure are coming from, the research base. We, we, we find, I've never seen a book draw attention to this, we, we find one of the options being the discursive, discursive prose itself, <laughs> the actual writing. <laughs> in the Mm -hmm. book um wonderful is also the i I had a lot of fun in the reading notes at the back certainly not to be missed um building up their own section and approach to to what the book is uh and then of course not to be missed the illustrations and the poetry involved in it um i'm just laying all that on the table there for you helen to maybe give readers a mental image of, of what this book is
1: well As you were talking, I was actually thinking again about the va, the relationship between the writer and the reader, and I had a a really important intervention from a reader, somebody who wrote to me um, after my book, Stylish Academic Writing, came out and said, let me tell you how I read this book, and she laid out the order in which she had read it. And it was not, you know, chapter by chapter, one, you know, through to the end. And she urged me and has become my most attentive reader for the two subsequent books, Reader of Drafts, um, because she's such an advocate for readers. So she urged me to think beyond the linear reader. And to imagine a reader who might actually want to just skim the table of contents and then jump to the chapter that sounds most interesting, for example. And with this book, um, I, I guess with my last book, I sort of imagined four doorways in because there were four main sections to the book. This book, my overall structure in a way, my mental map, which I lay out at the beginning was a mosaic where... There's so many different kinds of pieces that form their own patterns that I've laid out. I've laid them out in a kind of structure where you almost have to see the whole. And then once you've seen the whole, you can zoom in and it doesn't really matter where you start. There's not one order that takes you through And it's quite a different exercise writing a book where you've made that kind of decision because then you're no longer assuming that the reader of chapter nine has, you know, remembers everything from chapter two. But there are many, many academic readers who are linear readers and will read straight through. So I honor them as well. I give them the standard table of contents. I take them through in a in a linear kind of way that a different kind of reader could disrupt, and um, and then there are illustrations, as you mentioned. My um, friend and colleague, Selina Tustalemarch, who's a well, she's a former New Zealand poet laureate, so she's herself a, a stunning poet. But then she went from there, um, and I tell the story in the book a little bit to become also a prize-winning graphic mini memoirist, as she describes herself, an author and illustrator of um, children's books that have an almost cult following in New Zealand. And so when I asked her, invited her to illustrate, to provide collaboratively conceived illustrations for the book, I had no idea what she would come up with but I knew it was going to be one hell of a ride, right, as it was. And in the end, we we first were doing 30 illustrations, and then I went back to Princeton University Press and said, actually, can we have 10 more? Because I, I wanted her to put illustrations on the front matter and the back matter as well to kind of bring through this visual theme of the mosaic and so her illustrations for me i guess because maybe they're the part that i didn't create myself and so i get this incredible joy from opening up the book and i can just go through all of the illustrations quite happily without reading anything else now most of the illustrations are also mixed with some text and that text in most cases is mine so they're collaborative in the sense that the text and the the line drawings are kind of playing off each other. But it's almost like a whole separate thread through the book, that you could just read the illustrations, or you could just read the pleasure prompts, which are the 18 exercises, reflective writing exercises that I give people. Um, I think you'll get more from the pleasure prompts if you read The chapters that precede them, but they could also stand on their own. You could just go through and read all of the excerpts from the narratives of pleasure that I gathered from writers around the world, and they form their own kind of pattern mosaic-like pattern. And then I described my own discursive prose in a way as the grout that holds it all together, which doesn't sound very romantic, but if you stand back from a mosaic and you kind of squint your eyes and just look at the grout, it has its own kind of spider webby, interesting, intricate pattern. And so thinking in this non-linear way about how to put together the linear structure that is a codex book was, I mean, it was, it was quite an intellectual puzzle. <laughs> I'd like to say it was always a pleasurable one, but like anything that's a challenging kind of exercise, it certainly had its moments of frustration and pain and and anxiety about how it would all be received. But um, yeah, it was uh, I, I guess I was led by this idea of having um, a book that would also operate in a, in a, like a mosaic in a non-linear way and yet be coherent and have a very coherent message and argument. So yeah, well, I don't know, you know, your readers might be just running in the opposite direction from this book at that point. But I hope actually that it will be the opposite, that they'll be intrigued and invited in because I really tried to make it a book where any kind of reader, including the ones who love footnotes, <laughs> you know, um, any kind of reader is going to find something in there. I hope to give them pleasure and inspire them into pleasure in writing.
0: Well, I guess I've just outed myself as the footnote sleuth because <laughs> I really enjoyed that chapter. And it's funny to think of, you know, the the note section as a chapter, but you make it that way, and that's that's interesting. And, and, and if anyone is feeling like they should run in the opposite direction, well, then play opposites and, and go toward the book because it's it's, it's, <laughs> it's really amazing. Um, and as one last uh, qu- quick point, uh, Helen, that I would like to just broach with you because it's something that's been on my mind for some time, and your book illustrated it. Uh, in a way that I hadn't expected, it, the connections between writing and reading. I, I mean, I find it really amazing that what you've just told me about sort of your progress through this this perennial topic of yours of, of, of talking about writing and the importance of writing, which is just so obvious when it comes to academia and other places in life. Um, you talk about the, the effect of one of your readers on your design on your thinking as to how to organize things this advocate for readers says as you say and i have been thinking now for some time myself about this connection between reading and writing and it would seem that you know pleasure writing with pleasure must have connections to reading with pleasure and i think that they are is just as much a deficit of that going on in academia as there is in in the writing end. Um, I, I mentioned much earlier in the program this idea of you know standing before an an enormous a uh, list of hits after a search when you're trying to start into a new topic as as a researcher and and just trying to weed through things and just being thankful almost in the sense that you can assuredly cut an article off of the list or a book off of the list in a way. So it's, it's, it's a way of reading that that clearly won't automatically align with then enjoying the product that you create out of that. Right.
1: Well, I think it, (laughs) the whole issue is connected with this idea of, of, reciprocal teaching and learning and anything else. If you have a teacher who is not having fun, your students aren't going to be having fun either, are they? And likewise, if you have a text that has not been written with pleasure, it's been like pulling teeth for the author, it's going to feel the same way for the reader. So I think an issue with a lot of academic writing is that we have to read a lot of things that we don't enjoy. Um, and then we get this message that that's how we're supposed to write too. So we just, uh, you know, it becomes this sort of never ending cycle. Whereas if we played your opposites game and reverse that and thought, okay, I'm going to write with pleasure. I'm going to write about my excitement. I'm going to let that, come through. I'm going to try to create a beautifully crafted sentence so that my reader will read this and just go, oh, wow, they put that so well. And I don't even mean fancy. I just mean good, you know, science communication or whatever. A clearly written sentence about a complex idea is a a joyful, you know, can be a joyful experience to read. It's a reciprocal relationship. So if we write with pleasure we give our we can imagine a, a reader who's going to read with pleasure and if you need a reason to write with pleasure that might be the one to try to write the article that you wish somebody else had written for you to read and as soon as we start thinking like maybe not all our readers because we don't know who they are and and they'll have different opinions and different Tastes. But if we try to imagine ourselves as the reader of our own texts and write for what we would like, that would be a, a wonderful starting point, I think, in, in shifting a lot of our anxieties about academic discourse.
0: Well, thank you very much for that, Helen. That is Helen Sword, and her book, Writing with Pleasure, is out now with Princeton University Press. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Helen. Goodbye.
1: Yeah, goodbye. Thank you, Daniel. It's been a pleasure.
0: (laughs) Very good. And this is goodbye to all of my listeners. Bye-bye. And until next time here on Scholarly Communication.